The following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. My life before God, oh boy, I, I was angry. <laughs> used to try to pick fights with everyone, it didn't matter where I was. Kind of had a rougher childhood in the fact that, you know, I was kind of raised, well, it wasn't kind of, I was raised by a single dad. You know, it, when the, when I left the church the first time, it really helped me put those walls up to where I didn't have to let people in anymore. And instead of going to God to find my peace and my comfort, I started turning to things like alcohol. I all around was a terrible person. Um, I wasn't nice, I wasn't friendly. For a long time, I argued with my fiance here about how I didn't need to go to church. I could worship in my car. I could pray to him and that would suffice. I don't need, I guess, like the fellowship to really be a Christian. I kind of went through, I guess, the typical rebellious stages of not listening to my parents, um, trying drugs and alcohol when I was really young. trying to find self-worth and love and everything else but God. And I struggled with that for a really long time. Going into college at first was pretty rough just because it's like, well, I'm out of the house now. My parents don't have to know what I'm doing still. Finding Love City definitely changed my life. I was on a self-destructive path. I, you know, I got in a lot of trouble. But one thing that I always had to remind myself is that, and I still do it to this day, is that God forgives and he has forgiven me. And you know, he never gave up on me, even when I wanted to give up on him. It's definitely something, you know, I have to, I have to remind myself every day. You know, whatever I thought I messed up with in the past won't be held against me because I understand his gospel, I understand his love, and I want to commit my life to him. It's just completely um, changed my heart, and I'm just really excited for the future of just knowing Jesus and having him in my heart now. Finding God from where I was to where I am, I feel like I've made a complete 180. It's been a long road, but I definitely see better things coming and, you know, growing with this church and the community that I've built in it. And uh, that couple there will be getting married in less than a month, and I'll have the honor of officiating that. So we're celebrating front, back, sideways, every way, right? That's awesome. Weddings are fun. Uh, Turn with me, if you would, please, to 2 Corinthians 5. We're going to start in verse 16. Hallelujah. I've been a better Christian this week because the sun's been out and the weather's been nice. This week we're going to continue our series called Stories. And we're going to discover how King Jesus and the power of his gospel changes everything. Every human being has a story. And like all stories, each of us has ups and downs Uh, victories and defeats, we have good times and we have hard times, and we're going to explore together the importance 
of our stories individually and how God is able to take our individual stories and weave those together into a grand tapestry that declares his love and his goodness and his sovereignty. We're going to read together a few verses here in 2 Corinthians 5. It it describes what happens when the power of the gospel changes a person. Starting in verse 16, 2 Corinthians 5. Therefore, from now on we recognize no one according to the flesh. Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him in this way no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now all these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were making an appeal through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Verse 17 is really what I came here for, that we would see that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. Reading on from there is a bonus, however, I'll get in trouble because starting to talk about how uh, it has been, it's us that has been given the ministry of reconciliation, that we are ambassadors uh, of that message. I can hold you here for weeks, so we're not going to talk about that a whole lot. The bottom line is, There's a difference between positive thinking. There's a difference between self-help and what Jesus does when he comes and changes a person. You can't self-help yourself into a new heart. You can't take something that's dead and make it alive without the power of Christ and his gospel. And that's what we're talking about. That's the difference. And that's what matters. Last week we spent the majority of our time in Revelation 12. And there we learned that both God and us, his children, have an enemy. And his name is Satan. If this word is true, uh, then Satan does exist. Some people don't like that. That sounds a little ooky and spooky. However, I believe the Bible's true, and thus uh, we do have an enemy. Uh, he was thrown out of heaven after his heart was darkened and his eyes blinded by the poison of pride. He began to think himself worthy to be worshipped as God instead of accepting and operating in his role as a worshiper of God. This is not uncommon, and it's not something that we are uh, immune to being pulled into. Uh, Once Satan lost his first battle, once Satan was cast down from heaven, you would think that he would get the point. You would think that he would understand that fighting against God is foolishness of the highest degree. There is nothing, for lack of a better word, dumber (laughs) than coming up against God Almighty. Especially when you consider the fact that it is only by God's power and his sovereign will that the very fabric of this universe is held together. It was by him that all things were created to begin with. To try to stand in opposition to this God who is complete in power, omnipotent, and totally in charge is ridiculous. And yet, we see, uh, we, we see that Satan doesn't seem to get that point. God stands in a class all his own. God wins all the time. God wins every time. God wins, period. It seems, though, that somehow this very basic fact, this obvious fact, is lost on our enemy. 
Pride has done its blinding and stupefying work to its fullest extent. And Satan still wars against God. For now. For now. Instead of attacking God directly, which would obviously it would lead to just a grade A beatdown, Satan now attacks God by deceiving and distracting us, his children. That's the attack plan now. He knows he can't go up against God in a direct fashion, so he tries to hurt God by deceiving us and trying to win our affections away from the Lord. Um, I'm not sure if any of you encountered this, and, and I don't even know where I did. It may have been because I don't have cable, so I don't know where I saw this, but somewhere along the line, there was a show called Bully Beatdown. Anybody ever heard of that? Or no? I'll give you the premise. It's really, it, it's, uh, I don't think they meant to exhibit the... Uh, this is really kind of my eschatology, if you care. So at the end of the day, here's what happened. There would be people that got bullied, right? And they would call into this show, and they'd say, hey, yeah, here's the guy's name that used to bully me. So here's what they'd do. They'd take that guy, and they'd offer that guy money, like so much per however many minutes, he could last in a cage with a professional uh, MMA fighter. It was a great show, because what happened every time is the guy that was the bully would come in thinking, I'm going to make some cash, and he would just get the floor wiped with his face. It was awesome. And here's the thing. You're like, this guy is totally derailed, and now he's off on something that doesn't matter. Honestly, people ask me about, you know, are you amillennial, uh, pan-millennial? What do you think about eschatology? How's that going to happen? When's the, when's the tribulation? La da da. All I know is bully beatdown pretty much gets the point, because at the end of the day, here's what's going to happen. Satan, who has tried to bully us, God's kids, Ultimately, what's going to happen is King Jesus, big brother Jesus, is coming back, and he's going to lose big. We already know the end of the story, and so our hope is set in that truth. Yes, we strive and struggle now. Yes, we do have to fight and push back against temptation and the, the bullying of our enemy, but ultimately, I wish there was a cage. It doesn't say anything about that in the scriptures. However, Jesus is going to come, and he's going to put the whoop down on, uh, on our common enemy, and so uh, that's our great hope. So um, I don't... Maybe bully beatdown would be our eschatology here at Love City, okay? So you can just file that one right there. Um, here's the thing. Our enemy tempts us to worship anything other than God, which is really just worshiping our enemy. And I don't mean worship in the classical, you know, bow down or burn incense to or, or you know, sacrifice something to, ways that we think of worship traditionally. What I'm talking about is what do we devote our time and our talent, and our treasure to? What, what captivates our imagination? What are we thinking about the most? What is our attention focused on? We don't always understand this to be true, but our calendars and our bank statements would help us a lot to figure out where potentially our idols are, where potentially our worship lies. What is it that we focus our time on? What, what gets our attention? What is it that we put that, that money towards that can tend to be so precious to us. We either stand with God, forgiven and made righteous by the blood of Christ, or we stand against God, believing the lie that anything else deserves our affection or our allegiance. There is no middle ground. Oftentimes people are deceived into thinking there's this middle place you can exist. Well, I'm not, I'm not so much against God, and I'm not, you know, I'm not necessarily a devil worshiper, I'm just kind of doing my own thing. There's not three teams. There's two. Either you're with God or you're against him. This is why it is so desperately important that we take the responsibility of being ambassadors of the message of reconciliation seriously. 
It's why it's so desperately important that we, be, we get beyond our own petty issues and problems and the things that tend to mire us and keep us encumbered all of the time and begin to be outward focused. There are those that don't know that they can be saved through the finished work of Christ. There are those that don't understand that God really does love them. There's people that don't know. And, and oftentimes, you know, It'd be easier if we could just punt on, on the work of gospel ministry. If we could just say, well, you know, God's God. He's all-powerful. If he wants people to come to know Jesus, he can just send an angel. Or he can light a bush on fire like he did with Moses. Or, you know, God can do anything. Yes, that's true. But God told us in 2 Corinthians what he wanted to do. He wanted to give us the ministry of reconciliation. It is us that bear his name. It is us that bear the hope of the gospel. It is us that are called to be ready with an answer for this hope we profess. When our lives are so radically changed by the love of Christ, it should cause in us an automatic outflow and desire to love other people that way, to bring them along to understand the hope of Christ. There should be no disconnect there. Revelation 12 tells us that uh, we overcome the enemy by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of our testimony. And this is why we're doing this series. As the power of the gospel redirects and, and revolutionizes our lives and the lives of those around us, it is wise and it is fruitful for us to stop, to take notice, pay attention, and to celebrate together. This week we're going to take notice of the before and after of Richie and Susie's story. We're going to look at where they struggled, what lies they believed, and how the gospel changed absolutely everything. Richie talked a lot in the video about being angry before Jesus changed his heart. And that leads us to a really good question, something we should take a moment to talk about. Is anger a sin? Is anger a sin? The answer there is sometimes. Oh, man, you wanted a black and white, right? You wanted a yes or no. Sometimes, right? So now we've got to do some work. We're going to have to qualify that answer. What does that mean? Uh, Jesus never sinned, Ever. Though he was tempted like we are in every single way, Jesus never sinned. Yet I ask you this, did Jesus ever get angry? Absolutely he did. And thus we must understand there are occasions where anger is not only acceptable, but it is proper. Or else Jesus would not have done it. Uh, of course the answer is yes, absolutely. Uh, in, in Mark chapter 3 we're told plainly that Jesus was angry when the religious guys of that day tried to give him grief for healing a man's hand on the Sabbath. They were looking, they were coming to nitpick. They were, they were these religious Pharisee types that, you know, they, they were obviously better than God somehow. And so they, they wanted to come along and say, Jesus, you did work on the Sabbath. You healed that guy's hand on the Sabbath. And, you, you know, you could just see. I, 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 you know, the scriptures don't say this. I like to believe that the same vein I have in my forehead when I get angry, Jesus had. I can just imagine the look Jesus gave when he got angry. I would not want to be on the receiving end of that. I'm really hoping when I get to heaven one day I don't have to see that. Uh, I know because of his shed blood I won't. But sometimes I screw up enough that I wonder. Um, however, uh, Jesus did get angry and, and he, he pushed back against those guys and, and pretty much just, you know, told them to buzz off. Uh, in Mark 10, Jesus gets ticked off when the disciples stop the little kids from coming to him, being able to hang out with him and get close to him, right? The disciples think they're 
you know, uh, Jack Bauer 24 security team, and they think the kids are going to run up and bother Jesus. And, and, you know, Jesus is kind of doing his thing. He's ministering, and then all of a sudden it's like he, he notices what the disciples are doing. And I guarantee you, like, they got that glare. If there was a vein in the forehead of the king, it was out, right? And you could just imagine that piercing look that he gave them. Permit the children to come to me. I'll deal with you guys later, right? <laughs> Let the kids come. Uh, but it's clear, it says Jesus was indignant that they thought that it would be proper to keep the children away from him. Jesus wanted those children to come and to experience his love and affection. Probably the most well-known example of the anger of Jesus in the scriptures uh, is at the temple, right? And what happened there is con artists had set up to rip off the folks that were coming to worship there. Uh, and they wanted to sinfully capitalize on the, on the devotion of those worshipers. They were charged, what was happening is they were charging exorbitant prices uh, for animal sacrifices. People would travel a great distance at great expense to come there. And uh, these guys would sell sacrifices so that people could offer those in the temple. Uh, it's kind of like, not exactly, but it's kind of like, you know, when you go to an amusement park, right? And somehow they get $12 for a hot dog. Um, in no other place in the world does that make sense, and then you'd probably get in a fight over it. However, the amusement park knows. You came a long way probably to get there. You've been standing in line. You're probably tired and wore down. You're probably not going to go somewhere else to get it, and thus, they have you. You shell out $12 for a hot dog, and it's not even a good one, right? So this is kind of the deal that was going on there, um, it, it, you know, taking advantage um, of these people. And so, uh, and they were evil, and that really didn't make Jesus happy. So what he did, if you read it, it says he, he shut the place down pretty much. Said he didn't let anybody go in or out, right? So and a lot of times people think Jesus is like this, you know, product in his hair, always got a flowing robe, and, and you know, he's just petting sheep and hugging kids. And uh, he did hug kids, and I don't know if he pet sheep. I don't think the Bible says much about that. However, um, you know, he went in the temple, and he shut the place down. You know, he's, we're done, Right? Everybody out. And apparently, uh, folks, listen. So he shut the place down, kicked everybody out, and he went through and tipped over their tables where that, where that money that was got by sordid gain that brought him a really passionate anger, uh, that was all tipped over. And so I don't know what happened to it, if they had to recount it or he just put it all in the offering or what. But uh, Jesus was not happy. He was angry. Now, some of you, some of you are, are more holy than Jesus. And, and you would say, you should never get angry. If you're a Christian, you should never get angry. As a matter of fact, Christians, the best thing they can do is carry a basket with them all the time of flower petals and just throw those everywhere they go while quoting poetry, inspirational poetry, okay? Make sure it's, it's really things with nice, nice words that sound great, and, uh, and they, sh they should always just bring cheer to everyone that they encounter. Um, so you got that checklist? Flower petals, poetry, and cheer. That's the Christian way. No. <laughs> no, it's not, apparently. Apparently, there's a time for flipping tables. Apparently, there's a time uh, that angry, anger is uh, absolutely warranted. Uh, and the Bible does not say that we should never get angry. It does say in Ephesians 4 that we should not sin when we are angry. We should not sin when we are angry. So the reality is, how do you sort that out, right? Because all of us, you know, we, we tend to be justifiers of our own behavior. And so some of you are already there. You're like, yes, this is, the, this is my, the word for my life. I've been waiting for this. I can be mad. And uh, you're already sinning, so stop, okay? Here's the thing. 
this almost always, if not always, comes down to motive. Okay, Jesus' anger was born out of his love for God and his love for people. He was mad that his father was being disrespected and that his house was being used as a den of thieves. He was mad that God's children were being ripped off. He was not, his anger was not selfish or, or born out of being personally offended or because he didn't get his way or because someone hurt his pride. His anger was not a defense mechanism because he had been hurt and didn't want to forgive. There is such a thing as righteous anger. God is a God of both love and of wrath, and these things are not contradictory. However, if we are going to have righteous anger, uh, we have to check our motive. It can't be born out of some selfish deal. It can't be born out of some personal offense. And uh, if we're going to have righteous anger, it's going to be because of our love for God or our love for people. Christians should feel angry when people are oppressed. Christians should feel angry when women and children are taken advantage of. Christians should feel angry when God is defamed or his name is profaned. Righteous anger should, should bubble up in us over this. It should bother us. We should not be able to just casually observe those things and not be affected on an emotional level. This does not mean we are justified to go and do violence against people. But it also doesn't mean that using force is always wrong. Now, some of you are looking for the door. You don't like that statement. You think Jesus is a pacifist uh, and that to follow him means that. Um, I'm not advocating for the other side of the coin that we you know, all go out and buy camo fatigues and become you know, militant, crazy folks for Jesus and uh, just look to pick fights. That's not what I'm saying. However, let, let me just say it this way. If you don't like the fact that I said sometimes... Uh, anger is correct, and sometimes using force to correct a wrong is right. Um, let me just say it this way. If you're walking down the street, and you see a full-grown man uh, kicking a child in the stomach that's laid down on the ground, okay, and if, if what your reaction is, is you, know, you, you look down at your WWJD bracelet, and you, and you run through the letters, okay, what would Jesus do? Um, and what you think I just dated some of you. <laughs> some of you, if you know what a WWJD bracelet is, you're probably a child of the 90s. So um, congratulations. Who's got a WWJD bracelet on here? Anybody? <laughs> That's awesome. Um, if what you think Jesus would do in that situation is walk on by, I don't think you know the real Jesus. I don't think Jesus would walk on by. I think he'd stop and address the situation, and I think he would defend the one it was innocent in that situation. Now, I, I, don't, I don't think that that means we should um, go into a fit of rage and do more than is necessary uh, to stop the abuse of the child because that would be taking vengeance. And vengeance is the Lord's. Clearly, the scriptures say that. However, it is, I don't believe it is wrong to stand in defense of someone that can't stand in defense of themselves. Um, as a matter of fact, I'll just tell you that if I was in this situation... I'd be happy to explain the gospel and the availability of grace and forgiveness to the guy kicking the child after he woke up. <laughs> Can you imagine? I just imagine. <laughs> hey, hey, buddy, you okay? 
Okay, here's, I, I punched you in the brain stem, okay, and you're waking up. Um, you know, what, what do you think about Jesus? Let's have a conversation with you here, <laughs> laid out on the ground. <laughs> oh, brain stem punch evangelism. Um, I don't know. I may be off on that, okay? Don't, <laughs> don't take that one to the bank as theologically sound. However, I'm just telling you, that's where I'm at today. God's still working on me, okay? Um, but hear me, hear me in this, dear ones, hear me. Uh, none of you who harbor sinful anger and bitterness in your hearts should use what I'm saying to justify yourself. Uh, if you're angry because you've been offended uh, or you've been hurt or you've been disappointed, you will not have joy restored to you until you trade Jesus all of your pain for all of his peace. Please don't use what I'm saying that, that there are times when anger is the proper emotion to have. To mean that you're justified in that, in that deep, bitter type of anger that never leaves you and is always creeping right under the surface ready to explode. If you've been offended or hurt and you're holding that, you'll not see true joy. And your relationship will be hindered with God if you're not willing to trade that pain for the peace that God offers. Jesus is the best trader out there. He's the only one given the kind of trades that he does. Righteousness for sin, peace for pain, it's beautiful. And he invites us all to come do that freely because of what he did at the cross. I realize that this is often not a light matter. And I realize that anger may have a stranglehold on your heart and on your mind. But please hear me when I tell you this. There is hope. Some of you have lived with anger and bitterness for a long time. Some of you, it's, it's like a warm blanket you, you keep around you. Some of you, you, you use that anger as a shield to protect you. But please hear me. Please listen to me from somebody that knows. That anger is not the shield that you think it is. It's a noose around your neck. It's shackles on your hands and on your feet. It holds you down and it holds you back. It's something to be given to Jesus and trusted to him. Jesus can deliver you if you'll trust and believe him. You need not live with the confines of anger and the poison of bitterness in your heart. Some of you just need to hear me say there is hope for that. Some of you, it's been so long you've just accepted that's the way it is. There's freedom. It's at the cross. I stand before you as a living testimony of the fact that God delivers men and women from the chains of anger and bitterness. And honestly, those of you that know Richie know that he's much more like a tattooed, cuddly teddy bear than a meaner, angry guy, right? And that's not because, uh, you know, he read some book that said, just think happy thoughts. Jesus came and did something in the man's heart that took him from a hate-filled, angry person to somebody that lays in the floor in our nursery and lets the kids run up and kick him in the head and do whatever. <laughs> I've seen him in there. The kids love Richie, man. And uh, it's just clear. It's clear that anger doesn't have to hold you down. It doesn't have to hold you back. You can be delivered from that, but you're going to have to want that first. You're going to have to get past just being comfortable with bitterness being kind of the go-to. I know that's hard, and I know if you could just 
do it yourself, you probably would have. And that's why I'm saying you're going to have to appeal to God's help. But he can do it. He can do in your heart what no one else can do. I promise that that's true. I don't know how mean or hateful or angry Richie was, but I probably gave him a run for his money. And I'm not saying I'm fully sanctified. Of course, I'm still talking about brainstem punching people that are hurting little kids. However, much better than I used to be. I love a lot more than I used to. I feel a greater capacity for love in me. I used to meet people and hate them initially. That was the go-to. I hate you already. I don't know you. I don't need to know you. You have potential to hurt me, so I'm going to hate you. That's where I lived. Now I start with I love you. And you can't really do much about that. And that's only because of Jesus. No man can choose that. You can't do that yourself. There's hope in Christ. Richie also spoke of arguing with Susie about <clears throat> not needing to gather with God's people to be a Christian. They, I, I don't know, I, I didn't get the details of what those discussions would, would be like, uh, but that's not uncommon. So let me say two quick things about this unfortunately common sentiment among people. Uh, people say it very, various different ways. You don't have to go to church to be a Christian. You, I've heard it said Many different ways. I just want to say two things about it, and I won't spend a lot of time on it because I'm already noticing the shifting in the seats, a little bit of uncomfortableness, which is not a word. Um, so here's what I'm going to do. First, I'm going to read uh, Hebrews 10, 23 through 25 for you, okay? I'm just going to read some scripture. I want you to just listen closely to what it says, okay? <clears throat> Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more, as you see the day drawing near. Not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together, as is the habit of some, but to be concerned with not only with coming to be encouraged in the fellowship of God's people, but knowing that I have a responsibility coming into this fellowship to find out where you're at to care about you, to love you, to stimulate you to love and good deeds. It's not just about me. I don't just come together with God's people because I'm coming to get something, though I never come away without having received something when being with God's people. But I come equally looking to give something. And so the I don't have to go to church to be a Christian attitude, um, <clears throat> it, it, it honestly, it reeks of selfishness. I know that was fun, wasn't it? Everyone really liked that one. Here we go. Um, here's, here's the other thing. So people will say to me, you know, you don't have to be a part of a church to be a Christian. Here's what I'll often say in response. Um, that, I guess, um, that is about as true as saying, I don't have to wear a parachute to go skydiving. Yes, I guess that's true. Um, however, neither one of those is going to be the best way to get to your desired result. You could skydive without a parachute. Um, people have jumped from planes and parachutes not deployed, and they luckily landed in a soybean field or some other deal and probably miraculously didn't die. I mean, that's been documented. There's videos on the Internet of that happening. So it can happen, but it's, it's definitely not the best plan. Just go up there and say, you know what, I'm, probably, I'm the one. I'm the one that doesn't need a parachute. Let's go. Fire up the props, pilot. We're going. Right? It, do, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And, and really, if you read the New Testament, you look at the, 
the, the language used all through the scriptures, we talk about a personal relationship with Christ, and I absolutely believe that our relationship with Jesus can and is personal. However, all of the language used to describe the redeeming work of God through Christ is talked of in the context of him reconciling and redeeming his church, his collective people. Yes, he's saved you, but he's saved us, and he calls us together for mission. He calls us together to get a job done, that job being namely living out, exhibiting, and professing the beautiful gospel. We in community can do better on mission than we can do singly. And most people that are talking about, I don't have to go to church to be a Christian or or whatever it is, most of the time there's a hurt or an offense that happened from some type of church situation or, uh, you know, what they grew up in church, were forced to go, it was boring, and so they've figured out some way to, in their mind, justify, hey, you know, I'm the one, I'm I'm the Lone Ranger. And I would just caution you against that mentality. Because it's not biblical. We should gather together. We should not forsake the assembling of ourselves together. And yes, I know the Bible says that where two or three are gathered, uh, he is there amongst them. And so, you know, does that mean that I can grab a couple buddies and go to a bar and and get a pitcher of beer and some chicken wings and that's church? Does that count for assembling ourselves together? Look, here, the first problem is that whole scripture about two or three being gathered together, that's about church discipline. That's another thing. You don't get, don't get me started on that, okay? Because you don't like that one either. All right, we start talking about the church, having authority to be able to, you know, talk about what's going on in your life. Man, we don't have time for that, do we? So let's breeze right over that. Uh, But here's the thing. Yes, God is amongst us when we gather ourselves together, and I believe a couple buddies getting together and praying and agreeing on something, absolutely God's spirit is there. However, there is a commission and, and called out church of God. There are places that God establishes with, uh, with leadership and authority, and it's right to be a part of a church community and a church family. That's the truth about it. And I know several of you are completely unthrilled with everything I just said. I love you. Let's go skydiving without shoots. If you're that sure, let's try that one. Okay? Deal. We'll do it. Find some soybean fields and jump there. All right. Off we go. I knew that was going to be just, just, that went just like I thought it would. Your faces were as much fun as I thought they would be through that whole dissertation there on whether or not we should be a part of a church community. It's great. Okay. Um, Off we go then. So Susie talked about having a rebellious spirit before she was lovingly conquered by Christ. This is an echo of that original pride motivated by rebellion in the Garden of Eden. It's an echo of that original sin that our first parents, Adam and Eve, fell into. And we all struggle to varying degrees with that temptation. Uh, We often believe the lie that God is not good. That furthermore, God wants to restrict or withhold good things from us. We get sold that lie and we buy it, hook, line, and sinker. That God's will and intention toward us is not good. That he's got this big treasure chest over here of things and he's just holding us back from that because somehow he's bored and that's fun for him. This is never, hear me, ever true. God is good. And he's, his intentions toward us are good. And he promises uh, that he will work all things to the good of those that love him. And sometimes what we end up believing is that the only way we can experience the treasure box of super fun things that God's holding back from us is to rebel against him, rebel against his commands and disobey him. It's not true. It's not true. We also need our mind renewed uh, when it comes to our definition of good. Many things that look real good 
end up being a source of real pain once they've run their course. Can I get a witness on that? Anybody ever looked at a distance and thought, that looks like a good decision, then got up on it, partook of it, and realized, bad call. If you're not shaking your head, you might be a cyborg that's not really alive, because most humans have had this experience. If you're a cyborg, come talk to me. It would just be cool to meet one. Um, Right? So you're either not self-aware or you're asleep or confused. All of us have thought we knew better than God from time to time. And all of us have been wrong. Every time. Amen. It is only because of the promise of grace and forgiveness that flows from the gospel message that Richie and Susie can talk so openly about their sin and failures without fame, without fear of shame or rejection. The reality is it, is it is really to our great benefit that we can share our past and present struggles with one another. Because the reality is another alarmingly pervasive lie that we tend to believe is that we, meaning you, are the only ones struggling in a certain area. If the enemy can convince us that we are alone in our struggles and sins, that we are alone in our fears and in our failures, uh, then he can convince us to be isolated and disconnected from people. If he can convince us, you're the only one as bad as you are. You're the only one thinking that crazy thought. You're the only one struggling with that struggle right there. And because that's true, you should not tell anybody. Because you will be rejected. Because you will be shamed. That's a lie. That's a lie. Some of you have already experienced in community groups how this lie can be shattered. The back of this lie can be broken. When people are open, they take the masks off and they realize, hmm, my struggle is not as unique as maybe my enemy would have had me convince. I'm not as alone as I thought I was. You ever heard of the military strategy, divide and conquer? Probably the most well-known military strategy because it is so effective. Dear ones, we fall prey to this way too much. It's not the only way that Satan tries to divide us. He uses offense and, and pride and all kinds of things to try to get us disconnected instead of connected because he knows that if we are in unity and we have a singularity of purpose that we can rock the world for Jesus and people will go to heaven instead of hell. So the devil works very hard to keep us apart instead of together and he uses many tactics to do that. One of them is isolation. One of them is to convince you you're the dirtiest, you're the worst, don't tell nobody because they're going to be totally weirded out by how sinful you are. It's not true. It's not true. Deliverance comes in confessing our sins one to another. Deliverance comes in being open, being known for real. If it were not for the finished work of Jesus on the cross, sin would keep us separated and defeated. But because of the blood of the Lamb, there is power in our testimony, and we are rescued from darkness. We're redeemed from sin. And we are reconciled to our perfect God and Father. We overcome the enemy by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. The only reason the word of our testimony has any power in defeating the enemy is because of the work of the blood of the Lamb. But together, they break the back of our enemy. Together, when when, when I see stories like this, when I see someone else that was shackled in anger but God delivered them, the next time the devil tries to come and, and say to me, You're not really delivered. You're still the man you used to be. I can throw back in his face. No. I've not only seen God's deliverance in my own life and heart, but I've seen it in those that I'm walking with.
I've seen it in friends. I've seen it in family. And the shame is taken away because redemption is real. And this is the invitation of the gospel. It's not an offer to come and be bound by the overzealous rules of a controlling dictator. That is not what the invitation is to come to God. It's to be made free from the chains of sin and deception, to experience joy and purpose. God doesn't invite us to come and be held down by his tyrannical thumb. He comes and invites us to be free from the chains that so often hold us back. We're invited to experience joy and purpose and to have a relationship with the God who made us and really, truly loves us. That is the invitation of the gospel. And I'm thankful for it. That begs the question, what what must one do? What must one do to accept this invitation into relationship with King Jesus? What must be done? What is required to be loved and to be accepted by God Almighty. And the answer is you need to clean yourself up. You need to stop sinning and failing so much. You need to be doing, thinking, and saying good things that will start to offset all the bad things you did. Somebody should have stood up in this church and took this pulpit over. I'm a little disappointed. No, it's not. That's what you'd expect to hear, isn't it? Isn't that how the rest of life works? You've done bad. You're going to have to do something to work that off. But no. It's not about accepting the the free gift of salvation. Coming into reconciled relationship with God has nothing to do with you doing a whole bunch better, thinking a whole bunch better, saying a whole bunch better so that you can offset all the bad you've done. It comes down to simply believing that Jesus did those things in your place. That Jesus, though he was tempted, lived a perfect life that we couldn't. And that because he was willing to do that and then die in our place for our sins, that his finished work on the cross was enough to pay for our redemption. That his precious blood bought us away from a sentence of death and gave us the opportunity to have new life. This is the invitation of the gospel. This is what must be done. Not work it off, not impress God, not do better than you did, not clean yourself up because that won't work. Anybody ever been there before? I'll clean myself up. I, I got all this stuff that's jacked up. I know I'm not thinking right. Half the time what comes out of my mouth isn't right. And I'm doing stuff that, that I'd be ashamed if anybody knew. I got to get that straight and then maybe God can accept me. This is probably the greatest and most tragic lie the devil's ever sold. The invitation of King Jesus has come. I know. I know what's going on in the depths of your heart. I know every thought you think, and yet my invitation is still come. The beauty is he calls you to come. He says he'll give you a new heart. He'll take that heart of stone and make it into a heart of flesh. And then, then, once the power of God has changed your heart, then, once you have the Holy Spirit of God living inside you, we can start working on the list. Empowered now by the Spirit of God, you have hope of actually becoming free from those sins that entangle you. That's, what's, that's why Christianity, when, when people say, you know, all, all ancient, all sacred texts, texts pretty much teach the same thing, all religions pretty much teach the same thing, you know, you've got these moral principles that kind of weave themselves through all of the major religions, so they're all pretty much ending up at the same spot. That's not true. That's not true. You'll never find another religion that's going to say, 
You don't have to do good because Jesus did good. That's, that's not what the Buddha offers. That's not what Muhammad is offering. You do better. You, you do the right things. You, you pray a certain way a certain amount of times, and maybe you'll get to this point where uh, God can accept you. Christianity is different. It's scandalous. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't seem like justice. How can I be bad? How can I be wretched? How can I be the one that rebelled? How can I be the one held down with the sickness of sin? Jesus did none of that, lived perfectly. How can he step in my place and pay my price? Where else does that make sense? It doesn't, but somehow God in his love, God in his infinite omnipotence has decided that is justice. I will allow Jesus to take my wrath. I will allow Jesus to take the punishment. And if they will believe, if by faith they will trust in what Jesus has done, I will count it to them as righteousness. Do you get to go to your job and just believe they're going to pay you? And they'll pay you? Look, I'm not, look, I don't really have time to come and work. Plus work, ugh, right? So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to sit at home and just believe that you're going to pay me. If you get that to work, at any company, please, I want to be your first telephone call, okay? I'm on that train. I'm there. It doesn't work that way. Nowhere else. And that's why, that's why I, I struggle. That's why sometimes I, I do feel a little bit angry when I hear people talk like being a Christian is hard. <laughs> this burden is light. It's easy. You mean I get to bring all my junk, all my failure, all my sins, all that is wretched about me, all my dirtiness. I get to bring all of that. And I get to hand it to Jesus who is perfect and spotless. And he takes his righteousness, his peace and joy. He takes his salvation and he takes all my junk and trades me. What? Who else will do that? Nobody. That's why he alone is worthy of worship. That's why he alone is worthy of devotion. That's why he alone is worthy of allegiance and affection. That's why he's the only one that gets worshipped. Money won't do that. It'll promise you a lot, but it can't deliver that. Power, it, it, it has an intoxication to it. It'll promise a lot, but it's not going to give you what Jesus is going to give you. All these things that draw our sight to the right and to the left, these distractions that tend to pull us away, our one true source of joy. They're all counterfeit. And they end up disappointing. And they end up in pain. This gospel is God's answer to the question, what must someone do to atone for their sins? How can they pay the debt that their sin has accrued? Here's the thing. The gospel message is the answer to that question. How can someone atone for sin? How can someone make up? You know, and, and we, some, before I say that, let, let me say this. It's kind of a two-sided coin. Some people struggle. They feel like they, their story would not be helpful. Some people feel like their testimony is less than because maybe they were raised in a godly family. They had godly parents that took them and had them connected in Christian community. Uh, they, they were raised to know and love Jesus, and they don't have a, a testimony where, you know, they've 
almost died several times because of drug overdose or they you know, have killed people or they've been in and out of prison. They don't have this radical, transformative story, so to seem, uh, and they can discount that. There's two dangers here with the person that's like that. Let me speak to you for just a moment. On the one side, you could discount your testimony, thinking that there is no power in a testimony of someone being raised up in a godly family, instructed by godly parents, and walking that out every day of their life. Now, we know that that person is not saved because their parents are saved. We know that person is not made righteous because of their parents' faith. So there is still a point where that person has to come to belief. They can no longer ride on the coattails of their family. At some point, there has to be this transition where they truly believe in what Jesus did. And so for them, uh, there's as much transformation. If you're dead, you're dead. I don't care if when you were out in sin doing what you were doing, you know, you were you know, the king of a prison, or you, know, you murdered 25 people, or you were sitting in a church pew every Sunday. Dead is dead. Sinner is sinner. Made alive is made alive. But I need you to see that you're, honestly, your testimony should not be discounted because the reality is the sin that someone in that position is most prone to may be the dirtiest of all. That person is prone to kind of a self-righteous indignation. That person is prone to a, I've really been a good person my whole life. I, I never really did anything bad. It can be very hard for that person to even understand why the sacrifice of Christ even applies to them. I mean, the worst thing I ever did was didn't clean my room, right? Do I really, I mean, the blood of Christ, that's a pretty serious deal. Was that needed for me? The reality is we are all sinners by nature and by choice, and we all are in desperate need of the saving grace of Christ. And so for you to escape by God's grace, the self-righteousness that comes in being raised in a good Christian family is as much a testimony as the guy that died three times from overdose and has killed three people. No less and maybe more. So please don't discount that. And please, if you're, if you're that person, be willing to look into your heart and see if any of that self-righteous pride rests there. I've, I'm a good person. That's, 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 not, that's not really the deal. Because the Bible's clear that we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And, and the reality is what is required for a relationship with a perfect God is perfection. And here at Love City, when we talk about the gospel, we talk in these terms of perfection. That the reality is the bad news has to precede the good news because the good news doesn't make a whole lot of sense. For a long time, God's people have, have waved a banner saying, Jesus loves you, Jesus saves. And what's been lost in the conversation, what's been lost in people's understanding is, is saved from what? Because does not everyone know someone worse than them? Of course. We all know somebody, or minimally we have access to a TV that shows us there are people much worse than us by our own measure. And so it's easy to justify ourselves on that, that type of metric. However... The Bible is clear that God is perfect, holy, set apart. And what is required for relationship with a perfect God is perfection. Now we understand the bad news. If we are in any way self-aware, because I am vibrantly aware that I am imperfect, would anyone else jump in the imperfect boat with me? Okay? Again, to not respond to that, you're either asleep or very deceived. You're not perfect. I, I love you. Let me please tell you. <laughs> You're not perfect. Not even close. Yet that is what is required for relationship with a perfect God. 
bad news. Bad news of bad news. Baddest news. It's bad English, but I'm, I'm trying to get the point across. It's bad. It's terrible. It's the worst news. If it were not for the good news. And that's where the good news rushes in. That is why the gospel is so sweet and beautiful. That is why it is the greatest message that could ever be shared. Because though we are all separated from God by our imperfection, by our sin, Jesus came. And he lived the perfect life that we couldn't pull off. He did it. And then he died in our place for our sins. He stepped in. It is much the same as if we were, each one of us, convicted of murder. If if we had been... If we had been caught for murdering someone and we were absolutely guilty, we were given the death sentence and it was the day. And so they, they take us into the room, they strap us to the chair, and the needles lower ready to inject us with the serum that will take our life justly for us taking the life of another. And it is as if Jesus comes in, bursts through that door and says, stop, they are guilty, but I don't care. Put me on the table. Unstrap them. I will take it. They are guilty. I am not. I am innocent, and yet I have the authority to tell you, unstrap them. I'll take it. Wow. It's not a struggle to worship a guy like that. And the reality is, because of his perfection, Jesus didn't stay dead. That cross couldn't keep him down. Three days later, he rose, and now he sits at the right hand of the Father, making intercession for us, reigning and ruling in his rightful place. He's a king, and you're invited to be in relationship with him, if you will believe in his finished work, if you will, if you will believe in his gospel message. You need not fix yourself. You need not clean yourself up, but you can trust that he's got all the power you need. Thank you, Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus. Lord, I thank you for the gospel. I thank you for the power of your spirit to change stories. Thank you, Lord, that we are not locked into um, our, our past. Thank you, Lord, that our family tree does not dictate what it is you can do with our lives. I thank you, Lord, that first of all, the blood of the lamb has power. And the blood of the lamb infuses our testimony with power because of what Jesus comes and does in our hearts. Because of what Jesus does, coming and changing everything about us. I thank you that there is power in our testimony. Thank you, Lord, that remembering our story, remembering where we came from, remembering that we were rescued by King Jesus, that it is not only an encouragement to us, but I thank you, Lord, that our story has the power to encourage others. Lord, please let it be a deep conviction in us, your people, to remember our story, to keep sharpened the weapon of our testimony, to not let it grow dormant, but to share it as often as we are given the opportunity, knowing that when people hear of the power that you have to change us, that it can give them hope for the gospel's power to change them. Lord, we love you. And we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Love City Church, located in Cincinnati, Ohio. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. To give or find out more about Love City Church, visit www.mylovecitychurch.org.